Principles of Geology, Chapter 27, Part 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Principles of Geology by Charles Lyle. Chapter 27, Part 2. Elevation of the Ula Bund. Immediately after the shock, the inhabitants of Sindri saw, at the distance of five miles and a half from their village, a long elevated mound where previously there had been a low and perfectly level plain. See map, figure 71. To this uplifted tract they gave the name of Ula Bund, or the Mound of God, to distinguish it from several artificial dams previously thrown across the eastern arm of the Indus. Extent of Country Raised It has been ascertained that this new raised country is upwards of 50 miles in length from east to west, running parallel to that line of subsidence before mentioned, which raised the grounds around Sindri to be flooded. The range of this elevation extends from Puchum Island towards Gari. Its breadth from north to south is conjectured to be in some parts 16 miles, and its greatest ascertained height above the original level of the delta is 10 feet, an elevation which appears to the eye to be very uniform throughout. For several years after the convulsion of 1819, the course of the Indus was very unsettled, and at length, in 1826, the river threw a vast body of water into its eastern arm, that called the Faron, above Sindri, and forcing its way in a more direct course to the sea, burst through all the artificial dams which had been thrown across its channel, and at length cut right through the Ulabund, whereby a natural section was obtained. In the perpendicular cliffs thus laid open, Sir A. Burns found that the upraised lands consisted of clay filled with shells. The new channel of the river where it intersected the Bund was 18 feet deep and 40 yards in width. But in 1828, the channel was still farther enlarged. The Indus, when it first opened this new passage, threw such a body of water into the new mere or salt lagoon of Sindri, that it became fresh for many months. But it had recovered its saltness in 1828, when the supply of river water was less copious, and finally it became more salt than the sea, in consequence, as the natives suggested to Sir A. Burns, of the saline particles which the, with which the run of Cooch is impregnated. In 1828, Sir A. Burns went in a boat to the ruins of Sindri, where a single remaining tower was seen in the midst of a wide expanse of sea. The tops of the ruined walls rose two or three feet above the level of the water. And standing on one of these, he could behold nothing in the horizon but water, except in one direction, where a blue streak of land to the north indicated the Ula Bund. This scene presents to the imagination a lively picture of the revolutions now in progress on the earth, a waste of waters where a few years before all was land, and the only land visible, consisting of ground uplifted by a recent earthquake. Ten years after the visit of Sir A. Burns, 
above alluded to, my friend Captain Grant, FGS of the Bombay Engineers, had the kindness to send at my request a native surveyor to make a plan of Sindri and Ula Bund in March 1838. From his description, it appears that, at that season, the driest of the whole year, he found the channel traversing the Bund to be 100 yards wide without water and encrusted with salt. He was told that it has now only four or five feet of water in it after rains. The sides or banks were nearly perpendicular and nine feet in height. The lagoon has diminished both in area and depth, and part near the fort was dry land. The annexed drawing made by Captain Grant from the surveyor's plan shows the appearance of the fort in the midst of the lake, as seen in 1838 from the west, or from the same point as that from which Captain Grinlay's sketch, see figure 72, was taken in 1808, before the earthquake. The run of Cooch is a flat region of a very peculiar character, and no less than 7,000 square miles in area, a greater superficial extent than Yorkshire, or about one-fourth the area of Ireland. It is not a desert of moving sand nor a marsh, but evidently the dried-up bed of an inland sea, which for a great part of every year has a hard and dry bottom, uncovered by weeds or grass, and only supporting here and there a few tamarisks. But during the monsoons, when the sea runs high, the salt water driven up from the Gulf of Cooch and the creeks at Lukput overflows a large part of the run, especially after rains, when the soaked ground permits the seawater to spread rapidly. The run is also liable to be overlooked occasionally in some parts by river water, and it is remarkable that the only portion which was ever highly cultivated, that anciently called Syra, is now permanently submerged. The surface of the run is sometimes encrusted with salt above an inch in depth, in consequence of the evaporation of the seawater. Islands rise up in some parts of the waste, and the boundary lands form bays and promontories. The natives have various traditions respecting the former separation of Cooch and Sindh by a bay of the sea, and the drying up of the district called the Run. But these tales, besides the usual uncertainty of oral tradition, are farther obscured by mythological fictions. The conversion of the Run into land is chiefly ascribed to the miraculous powers of a Hindu saint by name Damarath, or Durunath, who had previously done penance for twelve years on the summit of Denordur Hill, Captain Grant infers on various grounds that this saint flourished about the 11th or 12th century of our era. In proof of the drying up of the run, some towns far inland are still pointed out as having once been ancient ports. It has, moreover, been always said that ships were wrecked and engulfed by the great catastrophe, and in the jets of black, muddy water thrown out of fissures in that region in 1819, there were cast up numerous pieces of wrought iron and ship nails. Cones of sand six to eight feet in height were at the same time thrown up on these lands. We must not conclude without alluding to a moral phenomenon connected with this tremendous catastrophe, which we regard as highly deserving the attention of geologists. 
It is stated by Sir A. Burns that, quote, these wonderful events passed unheeded by the inhabitants of Cooch, for the region convulsed, though once fertile, had for a long period been reduced to sterility by want of irrigation, so that the natives were indifferent as to its fate. Now it is to this profound apathy, which all but highly civilized nations feel, in regard to physical events not having an immediate influence on their worldly fortunes, that we must ascribe the extraordinary dearth of historical information concerning changes of the Earth's surface, which modern observations show to be by no means of rare occurrence in the ordinary course of nature. Since the above account was written, a description has been published of more recent geographical changes in the district of Cooch, near the mouth of the Koree, or eastern branch of the Indus, which happened in June 1845. A large area seems to have subsided, and the Sindri Lake had become a salt marsh. Island of Sumbawa, 1815. In April 1815, one of the most frightful eruptions recorded in history occurred in the province of Tomboro, in the island of Sumbawa. See map, figure 39, page 351, about 200 miles from the eastern extremity of Java. In April of the year preceding, the volcano had been observed in a state of considerable activity, ashes having fallen upon the decks of vessels which sailed past the coast. The eruption of 1815 began on the 5th of April, but was most violent on the 11th and 12th, and did not entirely cease till July. The sound of the explosions was heard in Sumatra, at the distance of 970 geographical miles in a direct line, and at Ternate, in an opposite direction, at the distance of 720 miles. Out of a population of 12,000 in the province of Tomboro, only 26 individuals survived. Violent whirlwinds carried up men, horses, cattle, and whatever else came within their influence into the air, tore up the largest trees by the roots, and covered the whole sea with floating timber. Great tracts of land were covered by lava, several streams of which, issuing from the crater of the Tomboro Mountain, reached the sea. So heavy was the fall of ashes that they broke into the resident's house at Bima, 40 miles east of the volcano, and rendered it, as well as many other dwellings in the town, uninhabitable. On the side of Java, the ashes were carried to the distance of 300 miles and 217 toward Celebes, in sufficient quantity to darken the air. The floating cinders to the westward of Sumatra formed, on the 12th of April, a mass two feet thick and several miles in extent, through which ships with difficulty forced their way. The darkness occasioned in the daytime by the ashes in Java was so profound that nothing equal to it was ever witnessed in the darkest night. Although this volcanic dust, when it fell, was an impalpable powder, it was of considerable weight when compressed, a pint of it weighing twelve ounces and three quarters. Some of the finest particles, says Mr. Crawford, were transported to the islands of Aboyne and Banda, which last is about 800 miles east from the site of the volcano, although the southeast monsoon was then at its height.
They must have been projected, therefore, into the upper regions of the atmosphere, where a countercurrent prevailed. Along the seacoast of Sumbawa and the adjacent isles, the sea rose suddenly to the height of from 2 to 12 feet, a great wave rushing up the estuaries and then suddenly subsiding. Although the wind at Bima was still during the whole time, the sea rolled in upon the shore and filled the lower parts of the houses with water a foot deep. Every prow and boat was forced from the anchorage and driven on shore. The town called Tomboro, on the west side of Sumbawa, was overflowed by the sea, which encroached upon the shore so that the water remained permanently 18 feet deep in places where there was land before. Here we may observe that the amount of subsidence of land was apparent, in spite of the ashes, which would naturally have caused the limits of the coast to be extended. The area over which tremulous noises and other volcanic effects extended was 1,000 English miles in circumference, including the whole of the Molucca Islands, Java, a considerable portion of Celebes, Sumatra, and Borneo. In the island of Amboina, in the same month and year, the ground opened, threw out water, and then closed again. In conclusion, I may remind the reader that but for the accidental presence of Sir Stamford Raffles, then governor of Java, we should scarcely have heard in Europe of this tremendous catastrophe. He required all the residents in the various districts under his authority to send in a statement of the circumstances which occurred within their own knowledge, but valuable as were their communications, they are often calculated to excite rather than to satisfy the curiosity of the geologists. They mention that similar effects, though in a less degree, had about seven years before accompanied an eruption of Karang Assam, a volcano in the island of Bali, west of Sumatra, but no particulars of that great catastrophe are recorded. Caracas, 1812. On the 26th of March, 1812, several violent shocks of an earthquake were felt in Caracas. The surface undulated like a boiling liquid, and terrific sounds were heard underground. The whole city, with its splendid churches, was in an instant a heap of ruins, under which 10,000 of the inhabitants were buried. On the 5th of April, enormous rocks were detached from the mountains. It was believed that the mountain Scylla lost from 300 to 360 feet of its height by subsidence, but this was an opinion not founded on any measurement. On the 27th of April, a volcano in St. Vincent's threw out ashes, and on the 30th, lava flowed from its crater into the sea while its explosions were heard at a distance equal to that between Vesuvius and Switzerland, the sound being transmitted, as Humboldt supposes, through the ground. During the earthquake which destroyed Caracas, an immense quantity of water was thrown out at Vallecillo, near Valencia, as also at Porto Cabello, through openings in the earth, and in the Lake Maracaibo, the water sank. Humboldt observed that the Cordilleras, composed of Guineas and Mica Slate, and the country immediately at their feet, were more violently shaken than the plains. South Carolina and New Madrid, Missouri, 1811-12 
Previous to the destruction at La Gaira and Caracas in 1812, earthquakes were felt in South Carolina, and the shocks continued till those cities were destroyed. The valley also of the Mississippi, from the village of New Madrid to the mouth of the Ohio in one direction, and to the St. Francis in another, was convulsed in such a degree as to create new lakes and islands. It has been remarked by Humboldt in his Cosmos that the earthquake of New Madrid presents one of the few examples on record of the incessant quaking of the ground for several successive months far from any volcano. Flint, the geographer who visited the country seven years after the event, informs us that a tract of many miles in extent near the Little Prairie became covered with water three or four feet deep, and when the water disappeared, a stratum of sand was left in its place. Large lakes of twenty miles in extent were formed in the course of an hour, and others were drained. The graveyard at New Madrid was precipitated into the bed of the Mississippi, and it is stated that the ground whereon the town is built and the river bank for fifteen miles above sank eight feet below their former level. The neighboring forest presented for some years afterwards, quote, a singular scene of confusion, the trees standing inclined in every direction and many having their trunks and branches broken, end quote. The inhabitants relate that the earth rose in great undulations, and when these reached a certain fearful height, the soil burst, and vast volumes of water, sand, and pit coal were discharged as high as the tops of the trees. Flint saw hundreds of these deep chasms remaining in an alluvial soil seven years after. The people in the country, although inexperienced in such convulsions, had remarked that the chasms in the earth were in a direction from southwest to northeast, and they accordingly felled the tallest trees, and, laying them at right angles to the chasms, stationed themselves upon them. By this invention, when chasms opened more than once under these trees, several persons were prevented from being swallowed up. At one period during this earthquake, the ground not far below New Madrid swelled up so as to arrest the Mississippi in its course, and to cause a temporary reflux of its waves. The motion of some of the shocks is described as having been horizontal, and of others perpendicular, and the vertical movement is said to have been much less desolating than the horizontal. The above account has been reprinted exactly as it appeared in former editions of this work, compiled from the authorities which I have cited. But having more recently, March 1846, had an opportunity myself of visiting the disturbed region of the Mississippi, and conversing with many eyewitnesses of the catastrophe, I am able to confirm the truth of these statements, and to add some remarks on the present face and features of the country. I skirted, as was before related, page 270, part of the territory immediately west of New Madrid, called the Sunk Country, which was for the first time permanently submerged during the earthquake of 1811-12. to 12. It is said to extend along the course of the White Water and its tributaries for a distance of between 70 and 80 miles north and south, and 30 miles east and west. I saw on its borders many full-grown trees still standing leafless, the bottoms of their trunks several feet underwater, and a still greater number lying prostrate. An active vegetation of aquatic plants is already beginning to fill up some of the shallows, 
and the sediment washed in by occasional floods when the Mississippi rises to an extraordinary height contributes to convert the sunk region into marsh and forest land. Even on the dry ground along the confines of the submerged area, I observed in some places that all the trees of prior date to 1811 were dead and leafless, though standing erect and entire. They are supposed to have been killed by the loosening of their roots during the repeated undulations which passed through the ground for three months in succession. Mr. Bringier, an experienced engineer of New Orleans, who was on horseback near New Madrid when some of the severest shocks were experienced, related to me in 1846 that, quote, as the waves advanced, the trees bent down, and the instant afterwards, while recovering their position, they often met those of other trees similarly inclined, so that their branches becoming interlocked, they were prevented from righting themselves again. The transit of the wave through the woods was marked by a crashing noise of countless boughs, first heard on one side and then on the other. At the same time, powerful jets of water mixed with sand, mud, and fragments of coaly matter were cast up, endangering the lives of both horse and rider. I was curious to ascertain whether any vestiges still remained of these fountains of mud and water, and carefully examined, between New Madrid and the Little Prairie, several sinkholes, as they are termed. They consist of cavities from 10 to 30 yards in width, and 20 feet or more in depth, and are very conspicuous, interrupting the level surface of a flat alluvial plain. I saw abundance of sand, which some of the present inhabitants saw spouting from these deep holes. Also fragments of decayed wood and black bituminous shale probably drifted down at some former period in the main channel of the Mississippi from the coal fields farther north. I also found numerous rents in the soil left by the earthquake, some of them still several feet wide and a yard or two in depth, although the action of rains, frost, and occasional inundations, and especially the leaves of trees blown into them in countless numbers every autumn, have done much to fill them up. I measured the direction of some of the fissures, which usually varied from 10 to 45 degrees west of north, and were often parallel to each other. I found, however, a considerable diversity in their direction. Many of them are traceable for half a mile and upwards, but they must easily be mistaken for artificial trenches, if resident settlers were not there, to assure us that within their recollection they were, quote, as deep as wells, end quote. Fragments of coaly shale were strewed along the edges of some of these open fissures, together with white sand, in the same manner as round the sinkholes. Among other monuments of the changes wrought in 1811-12, I explored the bed of the lake called Eulalie, near New Madrid, 300 yards long by 100 yards in width, which was suddenly drained during the earthquake. The parallel fissures by which the waters escaped are not yet entirely closed, and all the trees growing on its bottom were at the time of my visit less than 34 years old. They consisted of cottonwood, willows, and honey locust, and other species, differing from those clothing the surrounding higher grounds, which are more elevated by 12 or 15 feet. On them, the hickory, the black and white oak, 
the gum and other trees, many of them of ancient date, or flourishing. Aleutian Islands, 1806. In the year 1806, a new island, in the form of a peak, with some low conical hills upon it, is said to have risen from the sea among the Aleutian Islands, east of Kamchatka. According to Langsdorff, it was four geographical miles in circumference, and von Buch infers from its magnitude and from its not having again subsided below the level of the sea that it did not consist merely of ejected matter, but of a solid rock of trachyte upheaved. Another extraordinary eruption happened in the spring of the year 1814 in the sea near Unalashka, in the same archipelago. A new isle was then produced of considerable size and with a peak 3,000 feet high, which remained standing for a year afterwards, though with somewhat diminished height. Although it is not improbable that earthquakes accompanying these tremendous eruptions may have heaved up part of the bed of the sea, yet the circumference of the islands, not having disappeared like Sabrina, see page 416, may have arisen from the emission of lava. If Jerula, for example, in 1759, had risen from a shallow sea to the height of 1,600 feet instead of attaining that elevation above the Mexican plateau, the massive current of basaltic lava which poured out from its crater would have enabled it to withstand, for a long period, the action of a turbulent sea. Reflections on the Earthquakes of the 19th Century We are now about to pass on to the events of the 18th century, but before we leave the consideration of those already enumerated, let us pause for a moment and reflect how many remarkable facts of geological interest are afforded by the earthquakes above described, though they constitute but a small part of the convulsions even of the last 40 years. New rocks have risen from the waters, new hot springs have burst out, and the temperature of others has been raised. The coast of Chile has been thrice permanently elevated. A considerable tract in the delta of the Indus has sunk down, and some of its shallow channels have become navigable. An adjoining part of the same district, upwards of 50 miles in length and 16 in breadth, has been raised about 10 feet above its former level. Part of the great plain of the Mississippi, for a distance of 80 miles in length by 30 in breadth, has sunk down several feet. The town of Tamboro has been submerged, and 12,000 of the inhabitants of Sumbawa have been destroyed. Yet, with a knowledge of these terrific catastrophes, witnessed during so brief a period by the present generation, will the geologist declare with perfect composure that the earth has at length settled into a state of repose? Will he continue to assert that the changes of relative level of land and sea so common in former ages of the world have now ceased? If, in the face of so many striking facts, he persists in maintaining this favorite dogma, it is in vain to hope that, by accumulating the proofs of similar convulsions during a series of antecedent ages, we shall shake his tenacity of purpose. Si fractus illibatur orbis, impavidium ferient ruinae. Earthquakes of the 18th century. Quito, 1797. On the morning of February 4th, 1797, the volcano of Tungaragua in Quito and the surrounding district 
for 40 leagues from south to north and 20 leagues from west to east, experienced an undulating movement which lasted four minutes. The same shock was felt over a tract of 170 leagues from south to north, from Piura to Papayan, and 140 from west to east, from the sea to the river Napo. In the smaller district first mentioned, where the movement was more intense, every town was leveled to the ground, and Riobamba, Cairo, and other places were buried under masses detached from the mountains. At the foot of Tungaragua, the earth was rent open in several places, and streams of water and fetid mud, called moya, poured out, overflowing and wasting everything. In valleys 1,000 feet broad, the water of these floods reached to the height of 600 feet, and the mud deposit barred up the course of the river so as to form lakes, which in some places continued for more than 80 days. Flames and suffocating vapors escaped from the Lake Kilatoa and killed all the cattle on its shores. The shocks continued all February and March, and on the 5th of April they recurred with almost as much violence as at first. We are told that the form of the surface in the district most shaken was entirely altered, but no exact measurements are given whereby we may estimate the degree of elevation or subsidence. Indeed, it would be difficult, except in the immediate neighborhood of the sea, to obtain any certain standard of comparison if the levels were really as much altered as the narrations imply. Kumana, 1797. In the same year, on the 14th of December, the small Antilles experienced subterranean movements, and four-fifths of the town of Kumana was shaken down by a vertical shock. The form of the shoal of Mornaroge at the mouth of the river Bordones was changed by an upheaving of the ground. Canada, Quebec, 1791. We learn from Captain Bayfield's memoirs that earthquakes are very frequent on the shore of the estuary of the St. Lawrence, of force sufficient at times to split walls and throw down chimneys. Such were the effects experienced in December 1721 in St. Paul's Bay, about 50 miles northeast from Quebec, and the inhabitants say that about every 25 years a violent earthquake returns, which lasts 40 days. In the History of Canada, it is stated that in 1663, a tremendous convulsion lasted six months, extending from Quebec to Tadoussac, a distance of about 130 miles. The ice on the river was broken up and many landslips caused. Caracas, 1790. In the Caracas, near where the Caura joins the Orinoco, between the town San Pedro de Alcantara and San Francisco de Aripayo, an earthquake on St. Matthew's Day, 1790, caused a sinking in of the granitic soil and left a lake 800 yards in diameter and from 80 to 100 in depth. It was a portion of the forest of Aripayo which subsided, and the trees remained green for several months underwater. Sicily, 1790. On the 18th of March in the same year, at Santa Maria di Niscemi, some miles from Terra Nuova, near the south coast of Sicily, 
The ground gradually sunk down for a circumference of three Italian miles during seven shocks, and in one place to the depths of thirty feet. It continued to subside to the end of the month. Several fissures sent forth sulfur, petroleum, steam, and hot water, and a stream of mud, which flowed for two hours, and covered a space sixty feet long and thirty broad. This happened far from both the ancient and modern volcanic district, in a group of strata consisting chiefly of blue clay. Java, 1786. About the year 1786, an earthquake was felt at intervals for the period of four months in the neighborhood of Batur in Java, and an eruption followed. Various rents were formed which emitted a sulfurous vapor. Separate tracks sunk away and were swallowed by the earth. Into one of these the rivulet Dotog entered, and afterwards continued to follow a subterraneous course. The village of Jampang was buried in the ground with 38 of its inhabitants, who had not time to escape. We are indebted to Dr. Horsfield for having verified the above-mentioned facts. End of chapter 27, part 2